0: I'd like to introduce you to Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria is a friend of mine, and she has written two magnificent books, uh, Secrets of an Unlikely Convert and Openness Unhindered, which is, is brand new. And we're going to have a, a conversation for a few minutes. Some of you are very familiar with her story. Some of you, uh, this is the first time you've been introduced to her, and I think it will be really helpful to us in thinking about how our churches can minister. Rosaria, right after the Supreme Court handed down the decision, Many people changed their Facebook uh, avatars to rainbow flag images. And there were people who were celebrating jubilantly just right down from my office in Washington on the steps of the Supreme Court. Yeah. And you talked about one time that this was a world, when you see that, when you see the rainbow flag, this was a world that you helped build. What, right. what do you mean That's by right.
1: that? Well, I was a gay activist, so and I was also a lesbian and a professor. And the reason that I was a gay activist was not because I was angry or upset or, um, I, you know, had an axe to grind, but I genuinely believed that the world would be a better place um, with a, a politics of inclusion. And acceptance and, uh, and I felt that sexual diversity was a key part of, of what, what real diversity meant. So I was a professor of English and, um, I, I came of age, if you will, under some of the teachings of Michel Foucault. I'm a 19th century scholar. So, um, you know, uh, Foucault, um, Hegel, Marx, Darwin, these were all people I valued, thinkers I valued. And, um, you know, I, I never, I never remember struggling with same-sex attraction. In fact, when, when sometimes, uh, you know, well-meaning Christians say, you know, we want to put a banner out in front of our church and say, you know, please welcome everybody struggling with same-sex attraction, you know, and we're hoping we'll capture people like you used to be. I- I'm sort of scratching my-, my head. You know, I was a very happy lesbian. I was not struggling with same-sex attraction until I had committed my life to Christ. And then I struggled.
0: <laughs> but prior to that,
1: there was no struggle. Um, I genuinely believed that uh, lesbian sexuality was a, a more moral choice. Uh, I had had a heterosexual past, so I considered myself an informed lesbian, if you will. Um, <laughs> I, sorry. Wasn't raised in the evangelical church, so I'm not quite... <laughs> I'll probably say other things in the, in the next 10 minutes that might uh, might cause a flurry. Uh, you know, and I just, I just really did, did not un- un- understand it. And I remember once uh, speaking at a gay pride march, and there was someone who had a, a placard up that said AIDS is God's curse on homosexuals. And one of my friends quickly made a placard that said, if AIDS is God's curse upon homosexuals, then lesbians must be God's chosen people. And and I think, you know, I, I say that I'm not just to be a smart aleck, but I think people don't realize that when you choose to not share the gospel, but instead choose a kind of easy Christian moralism, it is so easy to defeat. Mm. You know, it 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 both angers and goads and confuses, but it it also just it falls apart.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, You talk about being a church stalker.
1: Yeah, I was. And
0: I really like that because I think it's helpful. Uh, It's helpful to to people because I think that often what we think, the, the, the way that this happens is we think that you have two people, they sit down, somebody pulls out Romans 1, says da-da-da-da-da, right. and then the, the the lesbian person they're talking to says, okay, what must I do to be saved? Right, oh, I must okay. have— And, and that's yeah. usually not how it happens, no. and that's not how it happened to you. Yeah. So how yeah. did you come
1: to Christ? Yeah, yeah. Well, I had written an article that was published in the Syracuse Post-Gazette, and it was on the Promise Keepers. And I don't remember what the Promise Keepers did. I, maybe my favorite parking spot was missing that week, but they came to town, and I was very much on a war against patriarchy, and so I wrote this letter— and, um, and I had just recently co-authored the university's first domestic partnership policy. So, um, you know, so I think I was kind of in the news. And an elder at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church brought my, my, um, my op-ed, uh, and put it on Pastor Ken Smith's desk and said, look, we need to shut this woman up. She's trouble. And Ken apparently said, oh, how about if Floyd and I invite her over for dinner? <laughs> um, and I was at the time writing a book on the religious right from a lesbian feminist point of view. And so when when Ken wrote me a letter and when we subsequently talked on the phone, um, I quite frankly thought, yeah, I'd love to go to dinner at your house. This is like a free research assistant <laughs> for my book because I was a real scholar and I realized that, uh, you know, I didn't, I couldn't wade through this book without help. And so that really began a very fruitful, um, uh, conversation that, that turned into a real friendship. So at my first dinner at Ken's house, he omitted two very important steps in the rule book of how Christians deal with a heathen like me. You know, take notes, right? Number one, he, uh, did not share the gospel with me. And number two, he did not invite me to church, which made me wonder if I was chopped liver or something. You know, it was a. But one of the things that really did show to me was that uh, Ken was willing to have a kind of long-term friendship with me. He didn't. You know, he wasn't thinking to himself, "Oh no, you know, what if she gets hit by a car when she leaves this house and I haven't shared the gospel with her? It will be all my fault." You know, mm-hmm. he was. He was in it. For the long haul, and one of the things that he did not do, and if you talk to Ken Smith um, or uh, you know read some of the things that that, that he has written, I mean, he, he will tell you that he he did not talk to me for a very long time about my sins, plural, and he didn't talk to me about my sins, plural, because he knew I had no understanding of sin principial, and, you know, and, and what I mean by that is. I had no idea that Christians believed that original sin distorted everyone. And Ken wasn't going to deal with my sins, plural, until he felt that we had a a, a deep enough understanding of these things. Hmm. And so we spent a good bit bit of time talking through the Bible, talking through life. Um, He... He not only witnessed to me the gospel, but he also witnessed to me what it means to be a good neighbor. And um, I think when someone asked Ken recently, you know, you know, when did you talk to Rosaria about, you know, the big issues there? You know, Ken never presumed that my being a lesbian was my biggest sin. Um, hmm. he, he knew it wasn't, in fact. He knew that unbelief was. Hmm. And so, I, you know, his house was a really interesting house to me. Um, the, the gay and lesbian community is a community quite given to hospitality, and I tell people that I use the hospitality gifts that I use today as a pastor's wife in my queer community, because that's where I learned that. But I noticed Ken's house was a lot like my house, People would come in and out, and the Bibles would be open. And, you know, this wasn't like a museum piece. You know, it'd be open. Somebody would spill coffee. That's okay. Um, they would talk about hard and heavy things. We would talk about epistemology and metaphysics and personhood. And these were very interesting topics to me because as a 19th century scholar, you know, sexual orientation was a category that was invented in the 19th century. And, and people are divided on what that means. You know, for for gay rights activists, the invention of the category of homosexuality and sexual orientation as a category of personhood, specifically as a species of personhood. Um, back in those days, I would have likened that to like the, the the discovery of the of the of the telescope or or how planets orbited. Uh, I mean. So, so you know, we would talk about these things, and, and it wasn't. Um, we would talk about sexuality and politics, and, and they didn't drop down dead. Hmm. Like, I'm sorry, we just can't talk about that here.
0: Hmm. And so, you talk about how you would go and kind of watch I the would. people coming, coming in and out of church I, for a while before I you actually
1: stepped in. Did. Yeah, yeah, I was really intrigued. I was intrigued. Uh, well, at this point too, I had been reading the Bible again, for a research project. But Ken didn't care why I was reading the Bible. And probably some of you pastors out there feel like that. I don't care if there's some heathen out there reading the Bible. I'm so excited. So I was reading through it, and I was really taken... Uh, with the way that the Bible was starting to undo some of my my well-worn assumptions, um, especially as I was reading through the Old Testament, I was I was really struck by the way that that um, when people deal differently with God, God deals differently with people. But I was especially struck with Jesus' invitation that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. My yoke was hard and harsh, and it was just increasingly so. And at a, at a dinner party that, that was a kind of a standard thing. Um, in the gay and lesbian community, it's common that one night of the week, somebody's house is always open so that the community really functions like a community. People know where to gather and talk and things. My night was Thursday night and at this gathering my my transgendered friend cornered me and said you know you're changing and this bible reading is changing you hmm. and and um and i said i said you know what if what if i said i think we're all in trouble you know what if what if i what if i said i'm i'm starting to believe that jesus is real and risen and we're all in trouble. And, and my friend sat down in the chair in my kitchen and said, I was a Presbyterian minister for 15 years. I, I, I believe this, but, uh, you know, I prayed that God would heal me, but, but he didn't. And if you want, I will ask God to, to heal you. And so I was really intrigued. That gave me a kind of secret, tacit permission to keep exploring. And at that point, I, I knew a number of Christians, um, at, at the university, and there was a particular way that they talked about the sermon throughout the week. That was quite, quite frankly, downright frightening to me. Hmm. Uh, they would they would apply the word of God to the most innermost details of their life, and it was quite clear that they were submitted under it. And it was quite clear that they believed that they were living out the story of the Bible. And, and it was very confusing and very frightening. And so I was just intrigued about what you know, what it would just look like to go to church. And so I would. I would park my little, um, my little red truck with the um, uh, National Abortion Rights Action League stickers and gay rights stickers on the back, and I'd park it at the coal muffler across the street, and I would watch these, uh, these, these people go to church. And, it was, uh, and, it, and I'd have my Starbucks coffee. I'd had my New York Times. And, it, and it, after a few weeks, I did start to feel like a stalker and that that maybe wasn't such a great idea. <laughs>
0: But when you came to Christ, it wasn't necessarily an easy transition into the Christian culture, was it? No,
1: well, well, nothing about it was easy. And I think that's part of why the SCOTUS decision was so undoing for me. I mean, it was a, I mean, not only because this is the world I helped create, I'm the face behind the posters and the rainbow flags, Um, but I do stand it do stand in the book of romans and in the fact that there is no condemnation in christ and i'm grateful for that so but but one of the things that I, I i couldn't help but to but to think about was that in 1999 when i did come to christ i did not come to christ because because i thought it was a good deal hmm. okay i didn't come to christ because i thought that you know like weighing a car insurance policy i was hedging my bets and i didn't come to christ because i had stopped loving my girlfriend or stopped loving being a lesbian i came to christ because of who christ is mm. and and i came to christ because i was i was convicted that although i had felt sincerely that i was on the side of peace and justice and compassion that it was indeed jesus i had been persecuting the whole time and so I came to Christ for that reason, not for those other reasons. And it was really hard. It was it was one of the, probably at this point, the hardest moments um, in my life. And I still don't like to think very much about it, because it was hard and disorienting and humiliating and frightening, Mm. and all of the things that go with grief and trauma. And I cannot even imagine how much harder it would be today with the Supreme Court and a whole nation saying, hey, Rosaria, you don't have to do that. I can't imagine how much harder it would be.
0: Hmm. And there are parents who are Christians, some of them here, yeah. some of them watching live stream, who have children who are gay right. or lesbian or transgender. Right. Um, what advice would you give to parents of a Rosaria Butterfield right. pre-conversion. Yeah, yeah. How, how should they, what are some things that you would say, do this, don't do this, as right. you're relating to your child?
1: Right, right. You know, when, um, when Ken Smith met me and when he introduced me to his church community, first through his home, I, I didn't go to church for two years after I first met Ken, no one treated me like an example of what not to be. Hmm. And so when I finally met and could stand in the risen Lord, when I finally could repent of a sin of identity, which is really crazy and hard, I didn't have to find a new church or a new family because those people loved me well enough to not condemn me because they understood that we were all strangers and outsiders and outcasts. I didn't have to go anywhere but home. Hmm. And so the same is true for you. Uh, this is not your fault. This is, uh, I mean, homosexuality is a, it's, it's, it's an imprint of original sin. Uh, it's, it's as normal as rain in some ways. Uh, each person struggles and is distorted by original sin in some way. Every single person. It's completely democratizing. And each person is in some way distracted by, by actual sin. And each person is, 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 is manipulated by indwelling sin. And that's part of what has happened since the fall. That's why we need Jesus. But when you are in the throes of sexual sin, you are not consciously making bad choices. I mean, I know from the outside that's what it looks like, but what you are is deceived. And to be deceived means to be taken captive by an evil force that wishes to do you harm. So if your son or daughter is deceived, you want to draw in very close. And you want to do this for two reasons. You simply cannot shake the gates of heaven for your child from a distance. Mm. You must stand close. But the other reason is that the gay and lesbian community is more than happy to be a family of, of of choice to your child. And 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 I will tell you that that is a real community. That is a vital community. That is a community that has much. Common grace in it. And that is not a community that the Christian church competes with very well because we are too programmatic. Without intending to do this, we live on a starvation diet of community. And so as a parent, this is a moment to take a deep breath and to realize that the Lord does not meet out these afflictions in anything but love that you are appointed to this ministry for such a time as this, and that the time that you spend on your knees and 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 in the company of your child is, is good time. It's invested time. And so you must not retreat, and nor should you believe any of the lies that Satan wants you to believe, and that is that it is your fault. You may not be a perfect parent, I suspect you're not, but you are not that powerful. You are simply not that important that you could cause uh, this or anything else. This is happening in God's appointed time, and you have to be there because you're really probably the most important person in this conversation, because one of the things that sexual identity, when you, when you, um, follow in the footsteps of the Supreme Court, which is following in the footsteps of Freud, which is following in the footsteps of the, uh, the, the, the worldview movement of German Romanticism, you're, you're endorsing an idea that people who struggle with homosexuality are a separate species of people. That is a lie from hell. And the only way to stand against a lie like that is to get close enough to get hurt. You know, that's the challenge, I think, not just for parents, but for everybody else. If you want to put the hand of the deceived into the hand of the Savior, you must stand close enough to that person to get hurt. There's no safe place to stand. You're safe because you stand in Christ. That does not mean you won't be ridiculed. That does not mean that you won't be sucker punched. That does not mean you won't be humiliated. That does not mean you won't be hurt. But you are doing God's appointed work. And so if you are a parent in that situation, please don't retreat from your church. As Mike just talked about, the church needs your experience in order to better understand how to minister to you. And this is important. Often, I think we like to be very well cleaned up Christians. You know, we want to, we want to share our resources, but a vital and loving church community, the kind of community where people of all struggles can, can, can participate in the kind of community where everybody understands that repentance is the threshold to God. That community depends upon your sharing not just your resources, but your needs. And it means sharing your needs in the moments, not, oh, you know, last week I was really struggling with this, but oh boy, things are better now. In the moments, that gives everyone an opportunity to, 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 to magnify God with you by praying, among other things.
0: You know, you and I are both adoptive parents. Yes, we are. And so one of the things that after we adopted our children, we discovered pretty quickly on were things that people would say. Right. That would just drive me crazy. Right, you know, right, yeah. are, are they brothers? Right. Have you ever met their real mom? Right. Those sorts of things that I would get so irritated about. And then I would think, did I say those things back before to <laughs> right. people? And so are there similar things that, that Christians, as they're talking with their gay and lesbian neighbors, things that you would say, when you say this, you're just you're just shutting things down. You're yeah, alienating.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it, first of all, it's really important to know that, I mean, you know, when Ken Smith and Floyd Smith and I became friends, they said a lot of things that really drove me crazy. <laughs> I mean, I'm just going to tell you, they said things that drove me crazy. But what we had a friendship, so I could say, that's ridiculous, what you just said drove me crazy. I'm not that kind of person, what are you thinking? And so what's most important is develop a relationship with people that is strong enough that, you know what, it can withstand the stupid things you say. Because if you're like me, you're going to say them. You know, and that's the thing. Friendship is not perfect. In fact, it gives people a wonderful opportunity to practice forgiveness. Um, but you know, having said that, I think it's also really good to listen and don't presume you know what is the situation in the gay and lesbian household across the street. Don't presume you know it. Get to know your neighbors. And have lingering time with your neighbors, and a really good way to do that is to have a scheduled time once a week where neighbors gather at your house, which actually means guess what? you have to be home.
0: <laughs> you
1: have to be home but you know but having said that, you know here's some things that I that I would just like to share from my heart because they've been heavy on me. Um, a person who is living as um, a gay man or a lesbian woman or a transgendered person, is not living in a lifestyle. It's not a lifestyle, it's not a hairstyle, it's a life, it's real. And it just feels real, it feels ho-hum normal. Um, It's also important to realize, now skipping if I can, to the church, that your friends and your neighbors, the people in your church, who are struggling with unwanted homosexual desires, are not unsafe people. People who know what they're struggling with are the safest people in the church. The unsafe people are the people who hide and who don't know what they're struggling with and who don't or who or who pretend they don't. So don't worry about the wrong things. Struggling with sin in the right way makes you a hero of the faith, not someone to be shunned.
0: Yeah, I, I, when I was reading your new book, I laughed out loud when you came to the part where you're talking about being in the kitchen with the woman in the church. And she said, am I being a stumbling block to you by being alone with you in (laughs) the (laughs) the kitchen? (laughs) And your response was? (laughs)
1: Well, it wasn't very sanctified. The response in my head, well, it was so strange because there we were in the kitchen, you know, chopping vegetables and she kind of leans in and says, is this safe? And I'm thinking, whoa, you know, kitchens like libraries. Unless there's a fire, what's not safe? And then I realized that was not, what was not safe, well, her perception of what was not safe was me. And so my first thought was, don't flatter yourself. <laughs> but you will be happy to know that as a pastor's wife, I did not say that. <laughs> I repressed it. <laughs> But I think that just shows that it, you know, you really, I, you know, we just, we, struggling with unwanted homosexual desires is not the, it does not create a separate species of person. And, and, you know, it's very, this whole sexual identity issue, it, it, it it's, it's challenging because people will tell stories that, that you should feel compassion for. When you hear stories like, I was 9 years old and I blew out the birthday candles and I prayed that God would make me a boy or something like that. That was not my story, but when you hear those stories that should give you compassion. But you know, as a Christian, the the other the other thing that we need to remember is that we need to share with people that a, there's a deeper identity, a much deeper identity and it started not when we were 9, not even when we were born. It started in this this amazing place called From Before the Foundations of the World. Mm-hmm. And, and if you are in Christ, that is where your union started. Ephesians 1, 4. It started from before the foundations of the world. And if you're in Christ and you're struggling with sexual temptation, and you know what? You're struggling for the 4,000th time and you are so sick of it and so sick of yourself, but you know, you know Romans 6. And you know that your union with Christ means that you were buried with him so that you can rise again. Hmm. And that changes that temptation. And then you have, you know, what we call applicatory union. You have the daily good company of the Holy Spirit to get you through. And when we're talking with people who are struggling, we want to say, look, I honor that this is a long time. In fact, it feels like a lifetime. But in reality, if you are in Christ, you started from before the foundations of the world. And if you are in Christ, as you're struggling with temptation, Christ is pleading for you. Mm. You are not alone. And then we say those words, but we need to live them. Mm. Right? We need to be a gospel community where family of God gathers together in real time and where singles are not people who need to be fixed or fixed up and where pockets of loneliness and seasons of loneliness can be anticipated, right? We don't need someone to come and share with us the details. We know that holidays are lonely and scary times for people. Isn't that a great time to use the extra bedroom in your house or even the couch? Hmm. I mean, so we we need to, to to not only share what union in Christ means and how much of a armor of God it is, how much it combats our loneliness and our isolation, but then we need to live it in a visible way. You know, if if your neighbors know if you have a snowblower, if you live in the Northeast. Or if you have a leaf blower, if you live in North Carolina, leaf blowers are very important so that your leaves end up on your neighbor's yard. And then, you know, three days later, those leaves come back in your yard. It's a, it's a relational thing. But if they know those things, (laughs) ought they not also know that you are a member of a church? And, And why isn't church membership something that translates across the fence? You know, it really, it really ought to. If, if, if unbelievers are supposed to understand why we are cross bearing people, then they must have some kind of connection to or opportunity to witness the means of grace before they come to church. Hmm. That's not the first. Church is not the first stop. Friendship is real friendship.
0: Now, I imagine when I think about about the pastor who was building this relationship with you. Yeah. I just know there's kind of in every evangelical community, there's kind of a protection racket out there is what I call it, of people who would assume if you are not expressing outrage at at your sin from mm-hmm. start to finish, right. that somehow you're a compromiser. Right. And so it seems to me looking at that situation that that I don't know what his peers were like but for a lot of pastors, that would take a lot of courage mm-hmm. to be able to build that sort of friendship with you, mm-hmm. because there would be other people who would say, "Well, you're you're soft on homosexuality because you you have this lesbian woman who's your friend and, and you're talking to her and right. and uh, that, right. that that that's kind of a, a courage in and of itself, isn't it?
1: Mm-hmm. I think it is. I think it is. But I think it also speaks to the. You know, I'm I'm a Reformed Presbyterian. This was a Reformed Presbyterian church. We're a very small denomination, and we have small churches, and so our our pastor he wasn't too busy hmm. for me hmm. um, he just wasn't and and then when I when the Lord started to undo me and it was just a complete undoing he didn't farm me out to some parachurch ministry that specializes in hmm. in, in homosexuality because because that wasn't that wasn't really at some point the fundamental issue you know hmm. he was a pastor who specialized, in preaching the gospel. He was perfectly equipped, and he was my friend. Because there were many times in the two years when I was reading, obviously, well, maybe it's not so obvious, I didn't write the book. You know, I threw the book away. I don't mean this book. I mean the book I was writing on the religious right. I just couldn't write it anymore. And at that point, I just wanted to stop reading the Bible because it was just it was weighing on me. It was haunting me. Uh, and the only reason I continued was because Ken— and Floy were my friends. And so he wasn't too busy to put stock in the, in the, the power of, of, of friendship. Um, and nor did he ever capitulate. You know, his house was a Christian home. You would go there to talk about metaphysics, and you'd have a meal, and you'd have family devotions you know, and before you know it, you'd memorized one of the psalms you'd been singing because you just mm-hmm. just couldn't get it out of your head on your next morning run. I mean, it was that kind of house. So it was never it was never a sense of uh that <clears throat> that that um just sort of chatting was taking over. Mm-hmm. Um Ken was very much the head of his household. One of the challenges that I had certainly was um was not understanding how how headship works in a Christian household. I mean, mm. from my perspective, anything that was associated with patriarchy was dangerous and bad and needed to be, uh, you know, done away with. And so, so to see this household working and to see other Christian households working was amazing. I, you know, it is absolutely, the word of God is rich and deep and powerful, but so are the hands and feet of God, which would be your house and my house.
0: Now, you're married now, pastor's wife, wonderful husband. Um, the same sex attracted person who's out there in, in the audience tonight, or who's, or who's in the churches or ministries of the people who are out there, is that what that person should expect if that person comes to Christ or is in Christ or not? Right. How, how should yeah. we think about that? You know,
1: I think that for so long we have, and in part this is because of the way sexual orientation has invited Christians to do this. The category of sexual orientation has invited Christians to see people who identify as gay or lesbian or live as gay men and lesbian women as somehow separate species. And I think we need to remember that that we have an identity in Christ. It is by being an image-bearer of a holy God. That is true for every single image-bearer. And it is a great liberty and a great gift to have people see that in you. Um, so I think the, the first thing to realize is that as we are, what repentance of sin does, you know, I mean, it actually took me a long time to repent and to even sort of work my way around the idea of repenting of my sexual sin because it had become a sin of identity. It had become so primal and deep within me that I couldn't quite separate it from myself. I couldn't stand against it. And so I had to start with other sins. But one of the things that you know as a believer, what repentance does is it teaches you the true nature of sin. It doesn't necessarily mean you're no longer tempted by sin. In fact, if you're honest, once you start repenting of sin and knowing the true nature of sin, you realize how many idols that you've erected to protect your sin of choice. How, how protected it has been. And so that is true for you and it's true for me. And so when I started to repent of my, my sexual love for women, you know, what that made me realize was that my sin goes deep and fast and it's, and it's, and it's, and it's rigorous. That didn't necessarily mean that I stopped feeling those feelings, and so what's, that's really important to know that when I became a Christian, I, be, I knew who Christ was, but I didn't feel any differently right away. So sexual sin, especially when you've practiced it as you know as committedly as I had, it, it takes a while. And you know, one of the first signs that you're free of a particular sexual sin is not that you're no longer tempted by it, but that the, the temptation doesn't control you. Um when the Lord calls you by name the Lord calls you to a ministry there is no one not called that has some that has, that does not have some part in the great commission and it is a very private and complex thing when i first started to repent of my sin The Lord impressed upon me a question, and it was really just a question. And it was like, it went something like this, Lord, how can I be a godly woman? How can I be a godly woman? And the Lord did impress upon me at that point the desire, very small at first, very confused at first, but the desire to be a woman covered by God, but also if God willed, the godly wife of a godly husband. It, it struck me that while I had been well-practiced in illicit sexuality, the invitation of biblical sexuality was unlike anything I had ever heard before. And while it wasn't a drive, and it was really scary, of course, it was just something, and it was just there. And so that was that's my story. And um that is by no means by no means in, in in the Lord's economy is there a proscription for what it looks like to be a Christian. I mean, look at this room here, and I imagine all the people who are not sitting in little folding chairs here watching this, we have we, we the diversity of our Christian callings are so necessary. And so to that end, the Lord called me to be not just a godly wife. The Lord called me to be Kent's wife. I'm not a pastor's wife. I'm Kent's wife and Kent happens to be a pastor. And if, and if, and if Kent wasn't a pastor and was something else, I would be his supporter in that something else. And I have certainly found that in our marriage, our marriage has been a place of very powerful, um, um, I don't know, application of gospel principles hmm. in terms of everything, everything from sexuality to living with compassion to Adopting children, we've adopted four children, two we adopted um, as teenagers, which means I have adopted people who stand a foot taller than I am. <laughs> you know I mean, those are hard journeys, and the Lord has has knitted um, uh, our hearts together through Jesus in ways that uh, has been powerful and important. But what was at the root of our friendship before anything else was a spiritual camaraderie. Mm. Um, a deep love of the word and a deep desire to build the church and to build up the family of God. Mm. So, no, you know, in fact, I'm always very suspicious when um, when people desire to be liberated from a particular sin only to be strong in yourself. Mm. You know, think about it for a minute. Why is that? A greater good i mean why wouldn't that just necessarily make you a pharisee or a kind of arrogant bully you know the lord wants you to be dependent upon him hmm. the lord wants us to to rely upon him in daily humility um, we are to go to the lord's fountain uh, daily hourly minute by minute the lord has no investment in simply answering a prosperity gospel prayer. And at the same time, we know that as you live in the, in the gift of obedience, because it is a gift, those particular desires of the flesh, they, they start to become a little more hollow. They, they echo a little more. You have a little more distance. Um, but if anyone thinks for a moment that the, your job is to stand in your own righteousness, um, that is a dangerous posture. Mm-hmm. And so we, we all are, um, are here by the unmerited grace of God. And as we share that to a watching world, we share that the distortion of original sin is the great democratizing reality for every single person.
0: So if we get this right in being gospel people to our gay and lesbian neighbors. Yeah. One of the things that will do is to point us back to what it means to re- relearn the gospel.
1: Amen, and to live it.
0: And to live it. Do join me in thanking Rosaria Butterfield? <laughs> this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts.